0: Uh, Planting roots is the journey that we all did together when Element is trying to find itself a permanent home. And a few years ago, we ended up buying that piece of land that's right out there. And we asked you guys, do we want to do this? And so you guys came together and made some pledges throughout this journey to move to the place of building Element a permanent home. Right now, we are on track to get our permits in December. We had this idea that we were going to uh, just throw in and try and get our pad permits to start working the ground and stuff. But we found out the way things are working, we want to get all of our permits at one time because it helps out better with the bank and construction loans to have, they want us to actually have everything. Imagine, right? So hopefully uh, at the beginning of December we'll have all those. Uh, the city has said that even when we turn in our second round of plans for the plan check, they think that they can even start to issue us permits. And then have little contingencies, you know, as long as this is uh, fixed on your plans by the time this is built and things like that. So the city has been being really good to us right now, so keep praying for that. Uh, but in planting roots, uh, this is where we're at. Because uh, we did a planting roots remix a, a couple months ago. All the numbers have changed, so it might look a little skewed. But So we're at 69% of the journey. We have... of the pledges that people have uh, offered to come in, but with all Planting Roots giving people who give to Planting Roots who weren't part of the journey, we have 61% of that 69%. I know, a bunch of numbers. Yay! That also means, get on the stick. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, And I need to say one more thing before we start, and I I really don't know what to say. Uh, We had an election last week, if you didn't know. I'm wearing my, my red, white, and blue shirt... Yeah, so I think it's important to understand that if you call yourself a Christian, in the scriptures, God calls us to be peacemakers. That is very important, especially with what's taking place in our country this last week. And to be a peacemaker, I think that you don't always have to agree with people who see things different than you, but I think it's important for us to begin to understand the reasons people do certain things. Like if... Uh, if you loved Hillary, and you actually—I don't think anybody loved either one of them—but if you voted for Hillary, and you look at Trump people, and you're like, "Oh, they're just a bunch of racists," what you have to understand is. They're not voting for racism. They're voting because they usually feel like the middle class has been downtrodden too long and been taken advantage of. If you voted for Donald Trump and you look at the Hillary people, the Hillary people do not want to destroy the Constitution. They don't want to destroy the United States. What they want is inclusion and acceptance and those kind of things. And you have to begin to see what the other side sees. We're never going to be these peacemakers. It doesn't do us any good to go out and spew and scream hate. Uh, if your guy wins, say "I told you so." If your guy lost, to say "How dare you!" Our republic has gone through a lot of presidents that a lot of people didn't like, and we're still here. And even if something happens where we're not still here, God is still sovereign. Okay, and and God's plan A may be our plan E. But it's still God's plan A, and God is going to grow and move his people as he wants us to grow and move. That turned out better than I thought it would, by the way. So, so let's be a people who are peacemakers. No matter what side that you fall on, be peacemakers. All right? Welcome to Element. If you are new, (laughs) there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go a little deeper into what we're talking about. Uh, You can download an app on your smartphone, though, called YouVersion. In a new version, some of you have to click on More, and then Events or live in there. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes versus questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Apparently, I heckle people when they do announcements. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, This is Matthew 10, verse 24, and it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who see you as our Lord and God and Savior and Master and King, that we would be a people who live out in this world your way so the world would know how good you are that when we have tendencies to get drawn into the vehemence of the mess that is around us, we would take a step back and remember that you are to be first in our lives, and that we would live that out in how we interact with others, and most importantly, how we worship you in front of other people. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in this short series that's going to take us into Christmas, like just a little over five weeks, guys. Get on the stick, right? Uh, it's called, What in the World? And it's some of the stuff that I still read through the scriptures, and I read some things, and I'm like, well, what in the world is that there for? What, what does that actually mean? And like like today, we'll get in this thing where Jesus says, hate your father and mother. And if you're, if you're a teenager, you're like, done, easy, sweet, right? <laughs> but... These are the questions you look at and say, you know, why would Jesus say that? Or why did Paul say that? Or why are those things there? Or why did this happen? We're going to do a part two in the future next summer called What in the World Part Two. We're going to answer some of your questions. So if you'd like to ask a question, there's three by five cards in the communion tables. On the back of your sermon notes, there's a little QR code right there. You can scan with the reader in your smartphone, and it'll take you to a website where you can type in your own What in the World question that we'll answer next year. Right now, I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. I'm gonna deal with that issue surrounding Jesus' words that unless you hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, you cannot be His disciple. It's like seriously, what in the world? Is Jesus saying. Matthew 14, I'm going to start in verse 25, just do 25 and 26. At the end, we'll come back and cover all the way through verse 33. But Matthew 14, verse 25 and 26 says, Now, as great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, stay there, but flip over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We call these things in the Bible are the hard sayings of Jesus. It's kind of like if you're eating chicken noodle soup, and you you expect it to be nice and chewy and wonderful, and someone left a chicken bone in it, and you're like, uh, ow, that's kind of the hard sayings of Jesus. Or maybe you got that yummy caramel apple on a Halloween from that really creepy guy down the street, and you take a bite into it, and bam, you hit the razor blade. I said the creepy guy down the street, okay, okay. We assume Jesus' were are supposed to be all nice and sweet and cuddly and friendly. Oh, he's Buddy Christ, right? But all of a sudden, wham, you get the razor blade. It's right. When you're a kid, do you ever have these candies called now and laters? Okay, now and laters are these little hard, little taffy candies. And if you stick them in your mouth, you feel like they're going to pull the fillings right, if you have fillings like me, they'll pull the fillings like right out of your teeth. I'm going to warn you, if you try just to chew it like that, they probably will. But if you leave it in your mouth for a length of time, they start to get soft and chewy and really yummy, and they're awesome. That's what, When I had them, I'd stick them in my pocket for like hours and be like, oh, now's the time. And then you... but, that, but that's kind of like Jesus' words here. When you, when you read a hard saying of Jesus, at first it's like the razor blade or the hard candy, but as you spend a little bit of time with it, It starts to soften, you start to understand what it means as you start to digest it, it makes a little bit more sense. And so on the surface, you might think it's horrible to hate your mom and dad because you had a good childhood, and you're like, why would Jesus ever say that? Where a lot of people would say, I've had a really bad childhood, and I'm already biblical, so (laughs) there you go. Only as you wrestle through it and deal with some of these things to realize what Jesus is actually saying (laughs) do you tend to understand what these things mean now if you I think one of the things Jesus does is saying this is if you hate your father and mother your way you're never going to be free you're always going to be in bondage you must learn to do this my way because my way is different so you have this parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10 and in context it will deal with God's sovereignty and peace and persecution but it uses the word love instead of the word hate uh, Matthew 10 34 to 38 Jesus says do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to set a man against his, uh, set his father, against a daughter, and <sighs> I don't know, I had a migraine on uh, Friday night, and I still have trouble putting my words together today, so just go with me, for I have... Come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, which kind of seems normal. Maybe they voted differently. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there it's kind of the same context. Jesus does use the word love instead of hate. In Matthew 14, when Jesus used is the word hate. Do you know what it translates as? Hate. (laughs) Literally, it translates as The Vine's Expository Dictionary says it's a feeling of aversion from what is evil or it can mean a preference for one thing over another. Like, I love cookies and I hate pickles. I love dogs and I hate cats. Normal stuff, right? Because in our culture, when we read those words about hating father and mother, it wants to jump off at the page at you and you see that first. Hate your family. But what's it really about? Well, first and foremost, I'll calm your anxiety. It's not even about fathers and mothers, and even that's what jumps out at you. In essence, this is about discipleship. It's about discipleship. In concept with Jesus talking about and what it means to follow Jesus, this is being a disciple of who he is. That's the subject. In Matthew chapter 10, the whole thing is about discipleship, the cost of discipleship. Families may reject you. They may stand against you. In Luke, Jesus summarizes all this with the words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It ends up being about discipleship. Now, last year, right before Christmas, when I was putting this message together, I'm reading a lot of Tim Keller and Douglas Wilson, who I think are great teachers in their own right. And sometimes when I read stuff that kind of inspires me, I give it to you. Like, if if I start to get really depressing, right now I am actually reading two books. One's called You Might Be a Zombie and Other Bad News. And the other one is called Everything is Trying to Kill You. So if I get really depressing, you, you know it's because of, of what I was reading. But So I'm, I'm reading these books by them, and I get all these ideas as I go through it. And so what I want to do is give you five things the text tells us about what discipleship is. And I don't know if it came from Wilson or Keller. It came from one of them. But I'm just going to go with it, okay? If it's good, it's one of them. If it's bad... It's me. I don't know. Okay, so this is this is number one in this. Jesus' discipleship is not optional. It is not optional. And you get this from the context. Jesus says, says, now great crowds accompanied him. His ministry is growing. He's getting very popular. People are following him. It says, and he turned and said to them. So Jesus turns to this crowd. Who is, this isn't just his disciples now. This is this crowd. Whenever Jesus got really popular, he kind of tries to give a wake-up call so people would see what it really means to follow him. So Jesus turns and he speaks these words about discipleship and the cross to everybody. And what it means is that Jesus does not have double standards like we have. Almost everybody thinks, when you think of Christianity today, that there's different levels and standards of Christianity. Like, there's the regular Christians who, who believe, but they don't get too excited about it. They pray for green lights and parking spots at Costco and maybe world peace at Thanksgiving or something like that. And then you have the crazy Christians who are all Jesus words, and you never understand a word they're saying, because they're always using weird Jesus words, and you're like, well, I don't even know what that means. And then you got the other ones who are always judging everybody else and out their own life, and then you have devoted Christians who are fully devoted to who Jesus is. They're invested and involved. In what Jesus is doing in the world, they want to tell other people about Him, so people would grow. They're not so much interested that you always agree with them. They want you to love Jesus, and what Jesus says is there is only one standard. Just one standard. He turns to the crowd and he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, anybody who deals with me has to take up his cross. I need to be first in everything. Ahead of parents. Ahead of family. Ahead of career. Ahead of political elections. Full, complete, sacrificial discipleship is how we follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a disciple, because the two things go hand in hand. There aren't two standards. Now, last year, my wife and I stayed in Niagara Falls. We went to visit her family. They're kind of close to there. So we stayed there because I had never been there. I booked this hotel a couple months ahead of time. I pay for it a couple months ahead of time because I don't want to get there and have a big bill when I get home. So we get to this hotel, and I go to check in, and they say to me, oh, did you want to park your car here? I'm like, where would I park my car? Well, that's $35 a night. I'm like, what? And they go, do you want Internet in your room? I'm like, how can you live without Internet? Yes, that's $25 a night. Do you want running water? No, I didn't say that, but that's how I felt, right? I'm like, oh, and they nickel and dime me to the point where at the end, it was like another hundred dollars. And I'm like, what? Canadians? Go, you know, those people? Jesus doesn't like that. Jesus doesn't have two standards. He doesn't look at the crowd and say, oh, I want to give you life abundantly, just follow me, and then quietly turn to his disciples and say, oh, but there's going to be crosses to bear. Not going to tell them that, though. This is what modern Bible teachers do. Oh, God's there to bless you, give you everything you want. They don't. And then when all of a sudden your, wife, your life melts down because you follow Jesus, oh, you must not have had enough faith. No, Jesus is not trying to hide anything from anybody. What he's saying is there is one standard. He never hides the cost. He never hides the difficulties. He never hides what could happen because you follow him. When we follow Jesus, he goes first in all things. And we have to be ready many times to kiss a lot of other things goodbye. And that could be a scary thing. Second thing is Jesus' discipleship is unpredictable. Unpredictable. You get this because he says father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. You know what that is? That's a patriarchal family. That's how this culture was oriented. This is essentially, in this time, going to be the course of your life. And we've always got to be careful when we read the scriptures from a westernized perspective because we tend to read our lives into it rather than reading what it actually says. Jesus lays out here the way a normal life would actually go. I know he left out death and taxes, but those are always implied. In Jesus' culture, life revolved around your family and your extended family. You were never to do anything that would disgrace your family in most circumstances you never moved away from your family you never married somebody your family didn't want you to marry you wouldn't vote for somebody your family didn't want you to vote for jesus is taking the normal agenda of a person's life and saying you have to be willing to kiss it all goodbye if i'm going to be first in your life Essentially, he's saying that we do not go to him with our agenda and say, God, do this and do this and do this. Oh, God, I want more money. I want a bigger house. I want a better looking spouse. I want better behaved kids. I want you to get rid of the cat. Then I'll follow you. Then I'll bow my life. Jesus says, I will not be used to this culture. There was no better way of saying, follow me for who I am. Follow me for who I am. It, Jesus is supposed to become to us the most relevant, thrilling, fulfilling thing in our lives, and that will never happen if we come to him with our own agenda. We come to Jesus for Jesus. We don't come because he's true, though he is true. We don't come because he's relevant, though he is relevant. We come because he called us and saved us and brought us to himself. He's given us joy and strength in, an, in our identity because he is our Lord. Period. Number three, Jesus' discipleship is deeply emotional. When I say emotional, I'm not like, "Ah," that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, But it is emotional because here he uses this word, hate. The word hate. Why does Jesus choose that word? Now first, no no commentator thinks that Jesus is actually telling you you should actively hate somebody. You're not supposed to be actively hostile to anybody. He's the guy who tells us, love your enemies. Love your enemies. On the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. I tell you this constantly. If you hung me on a cross, I would say, Father, kill them all. I would not say forgive them. All right? But Jesus says you're not even allowed to hate the wicked. You're not allowed to hate the wicked. So what does it mean? What in the world do he say when he uses the word hate? Every commentator will point out in a Hebrew context the word hate can actually mean in comparative to something else. The best-known example of this is Genesis 29. you got a guy named Jacob. Jacob is a knucklehead, and he gets snookered into having two wives. I know some of you guys are like, oh, that's a dream. No, it's a nightmare. Okay, it's a nightmare. (laughs) Amen, like you know. Okay, yeah. The two women are named Leah and Rachel. It says twice in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel and he hated Leah. But it also tells you in Genesis 29 30 that he loved Rachel more than Leah. And what that means, this idea of hate, it's not this active hate. It's compared to how he loves Rachel. His love for Rachel is so great that in comparison it's like hate. Not that it actually is. In the scriptures you will read things that say this... Father loved this son and hated this other son. And it wasn't hate. It's that this is the firstborn son. Everything goes to him. In that culture, there's a way to say in comparative, it's this one gets the firstborn blessing and this one kind of doesn't. Jesus tells us that he wants us to love him first and foremost, and that there is a familial type of love and affection with the father and mother. Then there's a spousal type of love with your wife or with your husband, which is also supposed to be an erotic kind of love. And then there's love with children. That's another kind of love. And then there's brothers and sisters and friends. Jesus is taking every kind of human love that we know, and he is saying, I want to offer you a love that everything else will pale by comparison. And it's not just sentiment or inspiration or passion, though I think it includes all of those things. It's interactive so much so that when we live in the grace and the love of Jesus, everything else begins to pale. Jesus is saying, he's not saying discipleship has nothing to do with duty. I mean, take up your cross and follow me. That's actually doing something. But Jesus is also saying that as disciples, we are emotional about him. Love for Jesus means he comes first in all of our loves. He's more important to us than anyone or anything else. How we interact with Jesus is meant to be out of love. Jesus takes all human loves and says, I offer you something more remarkable than that. It's kind of like this. All of our loves are like the stars in the nighttime sky. If you ever go outside at night, the stars are beautiful. It's like, this is an amazing thing. But when the sun comes up, those stars don't go away. Those stars are still there. But the sun becomes so bright that it overshadows everything. And all you see during the day is the bright light of the sun. And that's what Jesus is saying it's like. Our love for him is meant to be. His love for us is meant to be. We're supposed to understand those things as they come together. Paul says in Romans 5, 3-5... But we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do you make it through suffering? How do you endure? How does that actually mold your character into what it's supposed to be? God's love. Understanding that comes first in our life. God's love has been poured out into our lives and makes everything else pale by comparison. We are not disciples by being in a church building every time the doors open. We're not disciples by going to a million Bible studies. We're not disciples because we decide that I can explain my theology better than you can explain your theology. It is about Jesus being first. That's a disciple. Jesus says, love me because I first loved you. Augustine, this early church father, wrote this book called Confessions. And in it, he says, the key to having like a transformed character and courage, forgiveness, and peace in our hearts... Is the right ordering of all of our loves in our lives. I mean, think about this. A lot of people today feel like failures. They have a really low self esteem because they didn't measure up, they didn't do something they thought they should do, they didn't make enough money, didn't make somebody proud, didn't make a big enough difference in the world. And they get eaten up by all of these inferiority things and lack of confidence. But the problem with every one of those things is they love those things too much, they put it too high in their lives. Maybe your parents' opinion of you is is too high. Maybe that girl or guy who rejected you, it's too important to you. Maybe your money and your career is too important. Augustine echoes Jesus and says, You can, in your life, begin to hate those things. Father, mother, job, wife, friends. But hating those things is never, ever going to bring you freedom. The only thing that brings freedom is loving God more than all of those things, so nothing changes you down. A coward will not go to being a courageous person by learning to hate somebody more. A coward goes to courageous by loving Jesus more than his own life. That's how we go to courageous. Going from bitter and angry to peaceful and forgiving doesn't happen by getting mad. It happens by realizing that we are supposed to love Jesus first above all things. That's the kind of love that changes us. That's what it means to be a disciple. And we have received that kind of love from God. And we're supposed to love him back by how we love him and each other. Number four, Jesus' discipleship is completely positional. I'll explain what that means. Now, Jesus says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. He doesn't say, take up my example or take up my advice. He says, take up your cross Henry Sweet writes this he says to take up the cross can only mean one thing it must mean to put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal and it sounds negative but what condemned criminal are we supposed to put ourselves in the place of? it's your church it's okay you can say it Jesus alright good way to go It's why we understand that when our lives are found in Him, because He died, we died. And because He lives, we also live. Colossians 3, 2-4 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Tim Keller writes this, A better way to put it is that the minute you believe in Jesus Christ, you die on the cross with Him. It means that God looks at you right now as if you paid the penalty for every bit of your sin. That's what he sees. If you're a person who believes in Jesus and you start to beat yourself up because, I just can't forgive myself. God forgave you. You are not God. You don't have a right not to forgive that. Because as far as God is concerned, you have been beaten. You have been crowned with thorns. You've been speared through the side. You've been nailed to a cross. Your life is hidden with God in Christ God looks at you and he sees what Jesus has done. As a disciple, it doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want because our sins are forgiven. It means that every day we get up and remember we have died to that old way of life. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Every day we get up. And we remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. We are a people who live in the shadow of the cross. We are accepted. We are pardoned because of what he has done. Romans 12 says that our lives are meant to be living sacrifices day by day by day. Discipleship is emotional. And it's also positional. When Jesus says, hate your own life, he is not saying, be filled with self-loathing. Have a low self-esteem. He means that we are called to ego crucifixion ego crucifixion i know too many people who have a low self-esteem and anytime you say something to them, they're just ready to get angry and lash back out because they don't have ego crucifixion they only have a low self-esteem it's like don't you go against me we have ego crucifixion because of jesus crucifixion he is the one who gives us worth and value we trust our lives in him this is why we can say i have nothing to prove i have nothing to prove i know who i am in christ the most important thing in the world is living in the hope of the cross and the resurrection. Number five, Jesus' discipleship is unconditional. I think that just kind of goes without saying. But taking up your cross, this has a finality to it, right? It's like a cross is an instrument of death. In case you didn't know, it's not a little piece of jewelry you hang around your neck. It was an instrument of death. And so the central image that Jesus uses for a Christian life is this idea of crucifying ourselves. It, it's like if, if I had a party and I was able to rent an electric chair and invited you to come over and sit in it, you should say no because my friends would be like, yeah, you <laughs> get up to, I don't know, whatever it is, <clears throat> 50. <laughs> in Jesus' day, if you saw somebody walking with the cross, that was the last thing they were ever going to do. You, you're, you can't walk with the cross and be like, you know, this isn't really working for me. I'm not, I don't find this helpful at all, so I'm just going to set it down. No, when you're walking with the cross, that's the last thing you ever did. And we become a disciple, it means we're no longer our own. We're not even independent people anymore. The cross is completely subversive to our Western individualistic society that we live in. Because you don't have to hate your father and mother and your brother and your sister and your wife and your child. Not just that, but your own life. In Western society, we say, nobody has the right to tell me what to do, especially not God, when God and I disagree, God's wrong, I'm I'm right. Jesus says, when you follow Him, we are under the cross. We follow Him no matter what He says, we go no matter where He sends us. Understanding that we have started to follow Jesus means that we have signed on for trouble. And not always the fun kind. Usually not the fun kind. Too many people think discipleship in your life is, your life's gonna go so much smoother, everything's gonna be great, you know, God's gonna spray aromatherapy around you and you're gonna, oh, my life is so wonderful. No. No, you gotta understand that for Jesus, the cross meant death and suffering and pain. And we are called to identify with Christ in that. So sometimes we have death and suffering and pain. And I think the truth is that if we don't obey him unconditionally, we aren't really obeying him at all. Not really at all. We still think we're the king and he's the servant. And there are far too many people today, myself included, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying me too, who say, I'm a Christian, I know I shouldn't be doing this, probably, (laughs) but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because I want to. Too many people do that. As a disciple, we make decisions based upon Jesus alone, on Jesus alone, not what our culture thinks and not what our friends think and not what our families think. We base them on the lordship of Jesus. If you ever hear all this and you think, man, that's a lot. I can't wake up tomorrow and just do that. That's okay. I got a point number six, and this one is from Keller, and it wasn't really a point number six, but I stuck it in here as point number six because so I think it works. Uh, discipleship is gradual. It's gradual. This is why Jesus says, I think, take up your cross and follow me, because the cross is a gradual death. It's not a firing squad. It's not jumping off a cliff or electrocution. Jesus doesn't say, take up your 357 magnum and and follow me. What he says is, you follow me, and it's going to be a life that sometimes is really hard. But everything else pales in comparison to me and my love for you. It's gradual. Sometimes it's painful. Keller says it also means that Jesus is patient as our lives change. As they become more and more in line with who He's calling us to be, because we are reminded that He is the author and the finisher of our faith. So I'm going to read this whole thing in context now. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now, great crowds accompanied Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hopefully that makes a little more sense now. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Hopefully that makes a little more sense now. And then he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I think this is what happens when people use these slogans, Try God. It's not like God is the last drink on the bar and you go, well, try that one too. That's not how you live for God. Our lives are surrendered to Christ and everything. We pick up and carry the cross because he has first carried it for us. You and I, none of us, none of us have an army big enough to defeat God and what he's doing. And the beauty, though, is that God is the one who has sent terms of peace. God is the one who, rather than stepping in and battling us all along, says, you know what? I am going to extend peace to you. And that peace comes in the form of a cross that our God died to rescue us from all that separates us from him and us from one another. And I think our question needs to come today, and this is, who is first in your life? Who is first in your life? What things in your life have you given yourself to? What would you say you are a disciple of? Because if we're honest enough about this, every single one of us, at some point in our lives, we give ourselves to something that isn't Jesus. Something else becomes first. And we must be honest enough not to, you know, honest enough to talk about it and not just hide it away so no one sees it. We've got to be honest enough to say, this is what I have given my life to right now. And it's not Jesus. And then own up to it. And realize that Jesus is the one who has come to rescue and redeem us. Carrying your cross, Jesus has said that he will walk with us that he carries that with us. It's not the idea of, of actually making a piece of wood and walking up and down the street. It's the idea that our lives have been crucified so that Christ becomes first. That's what it means. And hopefully we as people can begin to live that way so that he is lifted up in all things because I really think after last week, the world needs this. It needs us as people to crucify our egos and to step in and begin to be peacemakers. Because was what our God has done. He has come to make peace with us. This is why we come to communion every single week. It's so where you break that cracker like Christ's body has broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people. So all that separated us from God and us from each other, all the things that made us want to go to war, have been taken away in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we lay everything down. We crucify our ego at the place and remember what communion means. And then we get back up and we live the life that God calls us to live. The band's going to come up. As the deal. we're going to invite you to take communion be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. Maybe you haven't understood really what discipleship means or ego crucifixion or what it means to really be a Christian. They'd love to talk to you about that. If you have any prayer requests, they'd, they'd love to talk with you about those things. Uh, there's offering boxes on the sidewall on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. Uh, we don't pass a plate. We believe it's a response to what God is doing in our lives. And so you actually have to get up and go and do it just like communion and just like prayer. And this is going to be food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. There's a million donuts. I always say a million. There's a good deal of donuts that somebody brought. And we invite you to grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people, and hopefully develop some relationships that are deep enough that you can ask somebody else the question, what do you think I am a disciple of? What do you see me giving my life to other than Jesus? And then listen to how they respond and listen to what they say. And then hopefully you guys can then begin to walk through that together. Because in our lives, we always put things for Jesus. And whenever we do, it never turns out well. Never. Never. So we must be a people who understand that our God was crucified for us. And so we, in turn, become a people who crucify all that we are to live and walk in new life that he has given. Because as Jesus rose from the grave, he rises us to new life. And we get to live in that new life. His love for us makes everything else pale by comparison. So let's be a people who love him back. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I said he would teach us how to love you in such a way that everything else pales by comparison. And Father, if we're really honest in our lives, it's hard to love you above all these other things. Because everything else is so close in front of our face every single day. And so I ask that you would teach us, continue to grow us, this gradual death of the cross. That you would have us understand your salvation of us and how our lives are meant to change. And that it wouldn't just stay with us personally. But they would live, we would begin to live out these lives with one another. Lifting you up by how we love each other. By how we call one another back to understand the cross and discipleship. And speaking into one another's lives. I ask that we would understand what it means to be in the shadow of the cross and that as we see and focus on you we would become those peacemakers in the world you call us to be that we would honor and love you above all things in our lives so that everything begins to make a little more sense because you are the God who has rescued us and we thank you for that Teach us to be a people who love you and others as you have called us to. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.